As we're in this Christmas season and we look to Luke chapter 1 and 2 over the next two weeks, it's not hard to find the facts of the Christmas story, the correct names, the right places, all the exact details. That's what the facts give us. But the songs provide us with the emotion, the drama, and the power. What a shame if we know the facts of the Christmas story, but somehow we miss the whole point of it. What a disadvantage to us if that happens. And so the songs of Christmas get us to the heart of Christmas. In the next two weeks, we're going to look this morning, next Sunday morning, and next Sunday evening in the Christmas Eve service at three songs that are found in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. This morning, we're going to look at Mary's song. It's called The Magnificat. Now, you saw in this helpful video that the angel comes and visits Mary. Now, after the angel visits Mary and announces the birth of the Savior, Mary goes nearby to her relative, Elizabeth, maybe her her cousin. And Elizabeth is also pregnant. This is Zachariah's wife that you, you heard about in the video. So Elizabeth is pregnant with John, who we will learn to know as John the Baptist, the one who goes before Jesus and prepares the way. And Mary walks in. Now, Elizabeth doesn't know that Mary is pregnant. Elizabeth would not have expected Mary to be pregnant. She's not married at that point. She's only engaged to be married. Now, and Mary may have not told anybody at this point. We don't know if she's told even Joseph yet at this point. So I imagine Mary's going to Elizabeth because, you know, when you have something important to say, you want to go to somebody that you trust, somebody that you know will have good wisdom for you but won't judge you and won't jump to conclusions. So Mary goes to Elizabeth. And can you imagine that journey for Mary? from Nazareth to where Elizabeth lived, thinking, how am I going to explain this? Like, talk about the truth is stranger than fiction. I'm about to tell her that I'm pregnant, but I've never known a man. But not only that, I'm about to tell her that I'm pregnant with the promised Messiah. And an angel told me that. So I'm sure she's practicing her speech the whole way there. And she walks into Elizabeth's house, and before she can say anything, God already does something for her. And John the Baptist, somehow in the womb, leaps because he senses the presence of Jesus. And it says that John leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's what Elizabeth yells out to Mary, unprompted. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary's like, am I showing? How would she, how would she know? And why is this granted to me that, listen to what she says, why is it granted to me? Why do I have the opportunity? Why did this good fortune come to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now, can you imagine what that did for Mary? How that strengthened her heart? How that prepared her for the journey before? Because she was about to be, she was about to endure some serious ridicule and judgment and criticism from the society. Nobody believed what she was saying. They figured she had done something that was not right. And so it's, conf- it's comforting for her. It's confirming for her. And what happens is Mary's heart is so warmed by this encounter that she immediately breaks into song. It's like it's a musical. She just breaks out into song. And we're going to look at Mary's song this morning. Mary's song is richly theological. It is packed with Old Testament references. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful song, both in its structure and in its form, and it's a beautiful piece of poetry. So let's read it together. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, Mary says or sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts and their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. As we look at Mary's song, in the lyrics of her song, we gain perspective on how Mary viewed the things that were happening to her, in her, and around her. And this morning, we're going to learn just three things about her perspective. And these are three perspectives that Mary had that you and I need. We have to have this. If we're going to get through life, if we're going to honor and serve God, we have to have these three perspectives that Mary had that we can see in this song. And the first one is this. This is in your notes. Mary had a big view of God. Mary had a big view of God. She said her first thing out of her mouth was, my soul, what? Magnifies the Lord. Do you know what that literally means? That literally means that my soul makes great the Lord, or listen to this, my soul enlarges the Lord. So Mary is saying, my soul enlarges the Lord. Now, how do we magnify God? How can you and I make him greater than he already is? Is he, is God some sort of small God that needs us to puff him up and to somehow it's through our work that we somehow make him greater or we make him bigger or we make him larger or stronger or more glorious than he already is? How do we magnify the Lord? How do we make him bigger? Well, we can't. We don't make him bigger, but God can be enlarged in your life. Not in that he's getting bigger, but that from your perspective, he's getting bigger. In other words, there can be and there should be a growing awareness of his greatness in your life. This is a big view of God. C.S. Lewis wrote this wonderful series of books for children called The Chronicles of Narnia. And the second book is called Prince Caspian. And in Prince Caspian, we meet uh, again a young lady named Lucy. And Lucy was in the first book and she's back in the second book. And she's back in Narnia and she reunites with Aslan, the lion. And there's this very interesting exchange between them, and I want to read it to you. Aslan says, Lucy, you're bigger. You're bigger. And he says, that is because you are older, little one. And then she asks, well, not because you are? And then he says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This is a beautiful picture of the truth that God is not getting any bigger, but in our eyes, he grows. As we grow, he grows. As you grow in Christ, God grows bigger. Your view of God, you will see God to be bigger, greater, glorious, not because he actually is becoming bigger, more greater, and more glorious, but because you are growing and your eyes are being opened more to see his greatness. Your perspective has changed. Last month, I had the opportunity to travel and speak at a conference in Springfield, Missouri. And Springfield is a place where my family and I lived for four years. When I was about three to seven years old, I lived there. How many of you have ever had the experience of going back to somewhere that you used to live and seeing it again? 
And it's, it's, it's a lot different than you remember. Here's a picture of me. I actually went back to my elementary school, Tom Watkins Elementary School, where I went to kindergarten, first grade, and second grade. And when we pulled up to it, I remembered it, but, I, but it is different now than what I remember, right? Because I'm a little bit bigger than I was back then. And my perspective has changed. Maybe you went to a house that you used to live in and you remember the backyard used to be this enormous jungle that you would play in all day long. And then you go back to it as a grown adult and you're like, this is the enormous jungle that I used to play in all day long? Has the actual space changed? No. Did my elementary school change? I don't think so. It looks very similar to me. But what's changed? I've changed. My perspective has changed. This is what it means to magnify the Lord with your soul. This is what it means to enlarge the Lord from your perspective. Your your, your perspective changes as you grow. You see him more clearly. You see him more wonderfully. You see him more beautifully. You see that he's big, and he's bigger than you ever thought. Now, one of the indicators that you're growing in your faith is this, that you find God bigger, greater, and more glorious than ever. That's one of the clues. Am I growing in my faith? Well, talk to me about your perspective on God. Is he bigger than he used to be? Or is he somehow smaller than he used to be? Now, this idea of finding God bigger and greater and more glorious as we get to know him more, this actually goes against the grain of the human experience. Because everything else in life, it's at its best when we first experience it, right? The first time you go to a movie theater, it's like, it takes your breath away. But the 20th time you go, it's not the same, right? I remember years ago, everybody was all about Krispy Kreme donuts, it was the nearest one was in Rochester, and people would drive to Rochester just to get Krispy Kreme donuts. I would drive to Rochester just to get the Krispy Kreme donuts. And then we got one in Syracuse on Erie Boulevard, and we're all like, yeah. And it closed. People didn't go. People stopped going. Why? Because things are at their best when you first get them, or actually they're at their best when you can't get them. Then once you get them, all of a sudden there's this slippery slope where things become less and less glorious, less and less great. That's life. How can that not be the case for God? Well, because in Psalm 145.3, the psalmist says this, listen, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And then he says this, and his greatness is unsearchable. That's why God can get bigger and more glorious. It's a, it's a bit of an ironic twist. The more you get to know him, the, actually the more mysterious he is in some ways. You understand more about his character, but you're still, you're, as your knowledge of God grows, your awe of God grows. As your grasp of who God is grows, your wonder of who he is grows. And it's not like everything else where as you get it more, you're less impressed. But with God, because his greatness is unsearchable, because there is no end to his greatness, we never should grow weary or tired or bored with him. Now, just pause for a second and reflect in your own life. Is this true for you? Is this true for you, that your soul magnifies the Lord, that he's a big God? Do you find the greatness of God to be unsearchable and wonderful and a mystery? Or, for some of us, is it possible that God has become boring, uninteresting? He's completely figured out by us. We've, we've got him sort of boxed in. And if that's the case, then your God is too small. He's too small. And we serve a big God. How do we know that we're serving a small God? Let me give you a few evidences that you might be serving a small God. Uh, The first one is this. You tend to separate the areas of your life into some that are for God and some that are for yourself. God gets this time of my week, but I get this time of my week. 
God gets this portion of my life, but when I go to hang out with these group of friends or when I go to my workplace, that's my time. Your God's too small. You know, did you notice when Mary said in the beginning of this song, she said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then she said, and this is a poetic device, a Hebrew poetic device known as parallelism. My soul magnifies the Lord. And then she repeats it, but uses slightly different words. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And the commentaries say this, that when Mary said, my soul magnifies him and my spirit rejoices in him, that poetic device was intended to communicate every ounce, every fiber of my being The totality of who I am belongs to God, my soul and my spirit. It's all of me. And so we have to be careful that we don't dichotomize our lives between this part is yours, God. When I walk into this building, I'm yours. But when I walk into the building where I work, then I'm someone else or something else. And and you kind of sit on the shelf while I do whatever I have to do. Another evidence that your God is too small is that you are overly dependent upon yourself. You're not convinced he can handle the issues of your life, so you're very consumed and busy and obsessed and stressed about handling all your stuff. You ever feel like that? Spinning plates, running around, trying to handle life, trying to coordinate not just your life, but you're trying to control the lives of other people around you? Well-meaning, people you love, people you care about. How's that working out, by the way? How enjoyable is that? How much rest are you finding in that? Your God's too small. You've forgotten how big. Tell your soul, soul, magnify the Lord. Enlarge him and make him great. Another way that you know you're serving a small God is that you think you can control him through the way you live your life. You have a good week and you think God owes you a pay raise. You do certain religious things and now you think God is indebted to you. That's a small God. He's not indebted to you. Our God is way too big to be indebted to us because of the things that we do. Uh, And then the other thing is that you'll know you're serving a God that's too small if everything else seems so big. Your problems, your circumstances, your fears, your relationship issues. If it all seems so big and overwhelming, then you're serving a God that's too small. You're living in fear, not in faith. So how do we magnify God? How do we do it? Well, it's primarily through spiritual disciplines, coming before him and going to the scriptures settling our hearts before him, coming to him in prayer. And then this is something that we often do, we forget to do. We read our Bible, we pray, but do you take the time just to consider him? The biblical word is meditate, to meditate, to chew the cud, so to speak. And just to consider, don't just plow through scripture as if, if you read enough, if, you know, the more verses you read, the more blessings you get. I'd rather someone read one verse and meditate on it for 10 minutes than just read scripture for 10 straight minutes. More can be done because the spirit can work in that moment. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, I like to leave off praying and singing and just sit still and just gaze upward till my inmost soul has seen the Lord. And then I will say, he is inexpressibly lovely. Yes, he's altogether lovely. When's the last time in your spiritual disciplines that you landed there? God, you're so lovely. You're so wonderful. You're so great. You're so... That really is the point of spiritual disciplines, to worship, 
God, you're so great, you're so big. So we need to consider him in scripture and in prayer and then stop and meditate upon it. But we also need to consider his work in creation, his work in sustaining creation, his work throughout history, weaving together the story of redemption and then his work in your life. And here's one final thought on this. We also need what we have this morning in this room. We need to help each other magnify the Lord. You can't actually fully do this alone. You can't. We need each other. We need to come together. And one of the commentaries I read said this, that there is an an intensity of magnification that occurs when we gather that does not occur as readily when we're alone. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have intimate, significant, spiritual moments when you're alone with God. You absolutely can. But there's an intensity of the magnification of who God is and the lifting up of who he is that can only happen in a room like this. It can't happen listening in. It can't happen reading a devotional by yourself. There's something about faithfully coming together that magnifies God and makes him big. So in this Christmas season, we tend to see Jesus as a baby in a manger, as little, little baby in a manger. But please, don't lose sight of the bigness of God. Have a big view of God. The second perspective that Mary has here is she has a big view of God, but she also has a proper view of herself. A proper view of herself. In verse 48, she says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She recognizes just in one phrase that she belongs to God, that she exists to serve and honor him, but most importantly, that he's looked on her and seen her in her humble state. Here's how some of the other translations say it. The NLT says, he took notice of a lowly servant girl. I love that phrase. He took notice. The NIV says, he's been mindful of his servant. The New American Standard says that he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Now this phrase in Mary's prayer is a direct allusion to another prayer in the scriptures. Do you know which one? In the Old Testament, there's a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is praying for a child. Hannah ends up having a child named Samuel. And Samuel becomes a key figure in the history of the Old Testament who bridges the era of the judges to the anointing of Saul as the first king of the people of God. And Samuel is a prophet. And Hannah is in the temple, and she's praying, and she says, look on the affliction of your servant in her prayer in 1 Samuel. But essentially what she's saying is, look at the humble estate. She's saying exactly what Mary says. Mary is quoting Hannah here when she prays this prayer. Now, what's the connection between Hannah and Mary, besides the fact that they're both women expecting their first children? Well, Hannah was experiencing personal, physical childlessness. That was her issue. She was barren. She could not have children. Now, Mary, that wasn't necessarily her issue, but Mary, as a representative of the nation of Israel, was representing a spiritual childlessness, that they were awaiting the birth of a messianic deliverer, who would be Jesus. And Mary knows that she doesn't deserve this. One of the books I studied says this, Mary was a nobody from a non-place. She was most likely a teenage girl who was you know, not known by anyone. But Christ, here's what we learn about Jesus. Here's what we learn about God. Christ comes to those who are not impressed with themselves. Christ comes to nobodies from non-places. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Those who realize their need and who know they cannot save themselves. So Mary has a proper view of herself, and her view of herself is this. I am the grateful recipient of the undeserved grace and goodness of my God. And so are you. And so am I. And that's the proper view of self. Now, I want you to notice, because at first, I, when I was writing out the sermon, I thought, okay, she had a big view of God, and she had a low view of herself. That's what I was going to write. But then I thought, I don't like the word low. 
And here's why I don't like the word low, because low sort of communicates she had low self-esteem or that she was experiencing self-pity. This is not a low view. You're not supposed to have a low view of yourself or a small view of yourself or a bad view of yourself. You need a proper view of yourself. So we're not talking about self-pity. We're not talking about low self-esteem because, you know, self-pity, let me say a word about this. Self-pity, low self-esteem, I'm a loser, I'm a nobody, no one loves me, no one cares about me, I'll never be any good. It seems like it's the opposite of pride, but you know it's actually just an inverted form of pride. Because pride is not primarily thinking you're better than others. Pride is thinking of yourself in place of others. And when you're swallowed up with self-pity and low self-esteem, you're doing the exact same thing prideful people are doing, but in an inverted way. Instead of thinking of yourself in place of others and thinking I'm better than them, you're thinking of yourself in place of others and thinking I'm worse than them. But ultimately, it's still rooted in the same thing, which is self-centeredness, self-absorption. So we're not talking about beat yourself up, think you're miserable, think you're no good. That's actually not what we're talking about at all. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He's a very helpful, famous quote of his. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Is that helpful? True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, that true humility means I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. A truly humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel humble person person. In other words, the solution is not to think poorly about yourself or to feel bad for yourself or certainly not to hate yourself, but the solution is to stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself all the time. And at this point, if you're honest, you should be asking, but how? How, right? How do I stop thinking about myself? How do I stop looking out for myself? Let's be honest. Aren't there days where it feels like it's our full-time job? Like, it's my full-time job to think about myself. And no one else is. It's my full-time job to look out for myself. How am I ever going to quit my full-time job of looking out for myself and have a proper view of myself? And here's the key. The only way you'll ever stop thinking about yourself all the time is if, that, is if you are profoundly, deeply, completely, entirely convinced that God is thinking about you all the time. That's the only way. The only way you'll stop thinking about yourself all the time is if you are convinced that God is thinking about you all the time and that his thoughts towards you are good, that God sees you, that God cares for you, that God is working for your good. Here's what it means. That whole job of looking out for yourself, you can outsource it. You can give it to God. God, you take this job. By the way, he's better at it than you are. He's much better at looking out for you than you are at looking out for yourself. You can outsource it. Now, Mary could embrace her low standing because she knew that even in it, not despite it, but even in it, God noticed her. He noticed her. There was nothing special about Mary. I can't say that enough. There was nothing special about her. Now, she's, she's very special now because of who she is in Scripture. She's very special. But at that moment, she was just another teenage girl in Nazareth. And so he notices her. She has no standing in society. She has no family status. She has no special gifts or abilities to speak of. And listen, for you and I this morning, in the world's eyes, there may be nothing special about you either. You may not be special. You may not have special gifts and abilities and feel like you have status in society. But here's the truth that we learn in the Christmas story. God notices you. God sees you. 
He cares for you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. And he wants to set you free to not always have to think about yourself. In other words, you can forget about yourself because God never will. You can forget about yourself because God will never forget you. God often uses people who are not great in this world's eyes to work his great purposes on earth. Remember this. The longer you serve in Christ, the longer you're in Christ, I should say, the harder it is for you to believe this. But the greatest things in your life have not been things that you have done for God, but things that God has done for you. In the Christmas season, it's very easy to think about ourselves, isn't it? Even in our thinking of others, sometimes we're actually thinking about ourselves. Even when we're picking out gifts, what we're really thinking is like, what's that moment going to be like? When they say thank you to me. Like, I can't wait, I can't, I can't wait for that. What, what about when they realize that I got them a better gift than so-and-so got them, right? It's, it's, it's very, it's a slippery slope. And here's some of the moments. Here's three moments coming up in the next two, week for you where you might find it easy to think about yourself and look out for yourself. And you need to remind yourself, I need a proper view of myself. First one is this, challenging interactions with family members. No one? None? In the next week? That would be wonderful. But sometimes at Christmas, you end up with family members that you haven't seen in a while, you don't see on a regular basis, and there can be challenging interactions. It's very easy in those moments to think about yourself. Well, how in those moments could you start forgetting yourself and start thinking about that person? Comparing the gifts that you've given with the ones that you receive, that could be a challenging moment. Or the gifts that you give with the gifts that somebody else gave. Maybe, you're, uh, you, maybe your family is expanding and now there's more people giving gifts to your children and now you're challenged because the in-laws gave this gift and we just gave this gift. And it's very easy to get caught in this sort of cycle of thinking about myself. And then for some of us, the way in which we think about ourselves in the Christmas season is simply that we are determined to have the perfect holiday. The perfect holiday. And then the turkey gets dry. Or then somebody's late. Or flight is delayed. Or it snows. Or it doesn't snow. And all of a sudden it's like, woe is me. You start having pity on yourself. In that moment, guard your heart from thinking about yourself. And have a proper view of yourself. And here's the proper view. God, I'm your servant and you took notice of me. Although I have no reason to be noticed. And you will not forget me. And you will always think of me so I can stop thinking about myself. So, a big view of God a proper view of self. And then lastly this morning, Mary has an upside-down view of life. And you heard it in the video. It's the reversal. It's the kingdom. It's upside-down. It's not what anybody expects. It's been a while since we read these verses, so let's read them again. Verse 51, Mary says, He, God, has shown his strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the start or certainly the acceleration of the great reversal. When Jesus was born, he was born in an upside down sort of way, but he also turned everything else upside down. And at this point in the song, it shifts. It shifts from being personal to being prophetic. She goes from singing about herself to singing about things beyond herself. And the reason we know it's prophetic is because look at the verbs in these verses. They're all in the past tense. They say things like this. He has shown strength. Well, wait, he's not even arrived yet. Or he has brought down. Is it all in the past? Is it not in the future? And this is called the prophetic past tense. And this is what it means. It views the future work of God as so certain, so sure, so determined that it can be presented as if it's already happened. 
That's why you read it this way. It looks like it's a past tense, but it's a prophetic thing that's saying it's going to happen, but because we're so sure it's going to happen, let's talk about it like it's already happened, right? And so that's what we read here. I want to look at three things she says. She says first that he scatters the proud. Now, here's what it means. God uproots and destabilizes people who are sure in their foundation, in their foundation of their life, whatever it may be, success, wealth, power, influence, intellect, ability, moral superiority. These are people who believe that their status and their good fortune is due to their superiority over other people. And God says, those of you that have built your lives on the wrong foundation, and from the world's perspective, you are on the strongest foundation possible, I'm going to uproot you. I'm going to destabilize you. I'm going to scatter you. He scatters the proud. These are those who look like they can't be shaken or undone because they're so protected by their wealth or their status or their power or their influence. And God says, it's all about to get upside down. I'm going to scatter the proud. Then it says that he lifts the humble. He lifts the humble. In 1881, Mark Twain wrote his first piece of literature of historical fiction. It's a book called Prince and the Pauper. It's about a pauper named Tom and a prince, Prince Edward, the son of King Henry. What happens is these two boys encounter each other in a chance moment, and uh, the boy who is the prince, Edward, he invites Tom into the castle, and they realize we look exactly like each other. And they decide, let's change clothes just so we can experience each other's life, just for a day. Well, then things go crazy, and they end up separated from each other, and the prince ends up having to live out the pauper's life, and the pauper gets to live out the prince's life, and, of course, hilarity ensues, and, 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 and the story eventually resolves. But what we have here is we have this great exchange of position, prince taking the place of a pauper, and the pauper taking the place of a prince. And this is what happens in the Christmas story here. It says that he's lifting up the humble, the mighty rulers, the kings will be brought low, but the lowly humble will be elevated. This should not be surprising to us because this is the storyline that we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament, that God chooses the foolish to confound the wise. He chooses the weak to defeat the strong. He chooses the younger brother. He chooses the youngest brother. He chooses the orphan refugee named Esther. He chooses Ruth, who has been widowed. He chooses people who everybody else thinks they're lowly, they'll never be lifted up. He chooses Job. Joseph, who's in prison, he chooses Daniel, who's a refugee, who's been taken captive, and he elevates them, and he's still doing it, and he does it here, because he lifts the humble. It's an upside-down world. And then lastly, it says that he fills the hungry. He fills the hungry. I thought this was a good one to end with, because we'll all be thinking about lunch right now. He fills the hungry. Now, in the natural, hunger is a bad thing, especially if you're uh, dying of hunger. Hunger is a bad thing. You know, And we're not always fun to be around when we're hungry, are we? You know, the Incredible Hulk says, you won't like me when I'm angry. Well, you won't like me when I'm hungry, right? (laughs) And they've actually created a word where they've merged them together. It's called hangry. Anybody heard that word? Hangry. I'm hungry and I'm angry. And I don't know which one I am, but they're definitely connected. Hunger is not a good thing in the natural, but this is the upside down kingdom. And God's saying hunger is a good thing. Now, why is hunger a good thing? Because hunger reveals a need that Christ can meet. Hunger reveals I have a need and Christ will meet it. Now in this Christmas season, it's really easy to to get this whole season wrong and to forget that it's actually different than what we experience out there. It's very easy to get caught up in the commercialism, isn't it? The hype, the consumerism, the pace, the busyness and the stress. But there's a better way. There's a different way. There's an upside down way. 
And the values of God's kingdom should counter and challenge the values of this world's kingdom. And so I'm not saying we boycott Christmas or gifts or anything. Don't, that's not what I'm saying. Please don't tell your kids I suggested that. They'll hate me. I'm not saying that at all. But we pay attention to what we value most this next week, where our heart really is, really is at. We make sure that our heart's values reflect the kingdom's values more than the values of this world. And that can change your Christmas. It really can. Big view of God, proper view of self, upside down view of life. And the last thing I want to say is this, that the Christmas story that Mary is giving us a peek into here, it's part of a bigger story. Did you notice how her song ends, verse 54? He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's bringing us all the way back thousands of years ago to the promise that God made to Abraham. Here's the truth. God started telling this story thousands of years before Mary sang this song. This is his story. And ultimately, this story becomes true because God chose Abraham and the nation of Israel to be his people so that through them and through their lineage, Jesus would be born, the Savior. Did you notice that Mary said in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, what? My Savior. Mary recognized that she needed a Savior. And she's calling out and recognizing that God is our Savior. Well, how did God become our Savior? Well, It's the upside-down kingdom. It's the upside-down life. The prince of heaven became a pauper. Jesus came, left the throne, left the beauty and glory of heaven, and came and was born in a cave, in a manger, surrounded by animals, dirty animals, teenage mom, dad, scandal, announced to shepherds who were nobodies. I mean, nothing about this story is is right side up. Nothing about it. The prince becomes a pauper. Why? So that you and I, who are spiritual paupers, spiritually bankrupt, unable to pay, unable to earn, unable to deserve our standing before God, the prince became the pauper so that the paupers could become princes and princesses, sons and daughters of God. And here's what happens once you realize that's true. You're going to have a song to sing, just like Mary did. You're going to have a song to sing just like Mary did. You're going to lift your song and say, God, thank you in this Christmas season. You're a big God. You took notice of me. And you flipped the script and you turned this whole world upside down so that we could be home with you again. That's the hope that we have in the Christmas story. Let's pray together this morning.